And, uh, and I, wow, uh, the fires. And so grateful that nobody yet has uh, major issues um, with your house and or property. That's great. Um, you guys don't mind if I'm down here a little bit lower, do you? That's okay. All right. Um, I, uh, I, I just want to say thank you to Jason for letting me be here um, and fill the pulpit today. Also, um, somebody mentioned the equipping service uh, weekend. Some people asked me after this, well, are you going to be at it? Yes, I am. I'm going to be there this afternoon. We're going to be doing seminars and so forth, and I'll be talking about young adults and journeying with them in life. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, but there'll be a bunch of other ones. And the president will also be there, and he'll be doing a best first prayer thing this evening, as well as answering questions for anybody that has that as well. Um, so you're welcome to show up and come to Sandpoint and join us this afternoon and evening. Um, there's a potluck as well. Usually, at least there usually is. So um, that's what's happening later. I, I wanted to also um, just say thank you in general for being here. It's wonderful to be here. This is my second time. I think I was here in 2017. So quite a while ago. So it's good to be back at this church. Um, and you've already met one of my sons. Uh, let me introduce you to the rest of my family. Um, my wife, obviously, right next to me. And you can see um, Elijah with the hat backwards, which that happens a lot. Um, and then right next to him is his older brother, Zachary. Oh, that's a great, this is why I put the picture up, because I really like this picture and the memories it had. That's gum behind us. That is the gum wall in Seattle. We went to, to visit family and have a small vacation. So we, we had to go see the gum wall. We'd heard about it. And, um, and, and so what they do, if you, you're not aware, you, you go to the gum wall and um, there's already been chewed gum all over the wall. And we got there and all of us had gum in our mouths. And um, myself and Elijah were excited to put gum on the wall. And the other two said, that's gross and walked away. <laughs> so that's what happened with us. Um, we, and, and then, of course, the obvious question is, well, how much, I mean, that's a lot of gum. At what point is it just going to fall off? And then we found out they scraped that gum wall once a year. So how would you like that job? So there's that. Um, anyway, this is my family. I love them. Right now, my youngest son's actually backpacking across North Idaho with a bunch of juniors from UCA. So um, A lot of people also ask me, well, what do you do in the conference? Um, so... You know, what is it that happens with you, and, and, and what do you do across the conference? Well, I'm the Youth and Young Adult Director, and, um, and, and we do a lot of different things. But I'll, I'll kind of tell you my primary job. My primary job is to oversee the department and to run Camp Myron. That's the two big pieces. Um, and and uh, some people say, well, you're the youth pastor for all of us. Well, no, no, I'm not. Like, it's two hours from my house to your church. That's not going to happen. Um, and so um, I'm not the youth pastor of the church. I am the youth and young adult director for the conference. I work with other people. Um, we have a whole team, a small team, a staff at Camp Myvedon. We run camp all summer. This last summer, um, Pastor Jason was at camp and did a week of Disciple Trek Camp, which is an awesome camp, a deep dive into scripture and discipling teenagers. It's a really great camp, so he was there for one of the weeks of that. Um, and then uh, we, so when we run camp, we run nine weeks in the summer. 
right? Seven weeks for kids and then training for two weeks. And that takes a lot of time all year just to make that happen and hire all the staff and get all the campers there and all those kind of things. Um, so it's a lot of work then. Um, the other thing I do is I do a little bit of young adult ministry in the conference. I do some training with churches and so forth. I have an associate. His name is Richie Brower. Some of you may know him. He's our Pathfinder, um, our club ministries, I should say, director in the conference. And so he goes all over the conference doing that kind of stuff, um, and connecting with them. Uh, some of you were just mentioning the Camporee coming up. And that's exciting. We have, well, last I saw, we were about 1,400, 1,500 people coming to the Camporee, which is awesome um, because since 2019, the numbers have not been super high. And, um, and so having that many come out is great. Um, of course, we'll be in Kalispell on Sabbath. It's Parks, National Parks Day, which is really cool, which means all the parks in the United States are free for that day. So guess what? 1,500 Pathfinders descending on Glacier, so that's exciting. Um, and, uh, and here's another really great thing. Uh, just under 50% of all, the, uh, all the Pathfinders that are going to be there are from this conference. And so that is great, too. In fact, just to go back on another thing, one other number, this last summer at camp, we had the most campers that have ever been to Camp Maivinet, ever, on the books that we can find. So we would love to have your kids at camp, your families at camp. Um, it's, a, it's a great experience. Um, we also do some youth ministry and stuff like that, too. We're going to do kind of a, a Bible slash youth rally here coming up uh, this next spring. Um, Richie's working on that. Um, we also do training across the conference. So this weekend, for example, I'll be doing seminars. Uh, in a few weekends, uh, we'll be down at a group of churches where Richie and I are going to spend time just training uh, youth and young adult leaders on how to do your job well. And so we do this kind of stuff all across the conference all year long. Keeps us very busy. There's never a dull moment. Um, and we're very blessed. Um, you know, since, um, since 2020, February 2020, things have been uh, a little bit challenging uh, with COVID. And, um, and we, I feel like now we're finally coming back to having everybody back and engaging. So that's super good. Um, at summer camp during staff week, I ask all the staff to read a portion or a book of the Bible. And it usually fits our theme for the year and so forth. Well, two years ago, we read through the book of Ephesians. And our scripture text this morning, um, just I fell in love with it. I fell in love with this scripture text. And let's read it again. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself for us as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Wow, that's just beautiful. I'd like to pray. Before we get into this further. Dear God, I pray that you'd bless, pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts, that we come to know you more, that you'd lift us up to see you. In your name we pray, amen. I opened my eyes. We were in a room, and it was shoulder to shoulder. Room was probably about this big as this sanctuary. And there was people sitting on the floors all the way around the perimeter of the room. And you could hear people praying 
One person would pray, then another person would pray, then another person would pray. And I looked, and, and I looked at all the young adults, almost all college students, all the way around the room as they were praying. Praying for God's blessing. Praying for his outpouring. Praying for God to do something amazing with what we were doing in ministry. This was a community center in downtown, the heart of downtown Benton Harbor. And we were all young adults there doing ministry or trying to do ministry. We really didn't know what we were doing, to be honest with you. But we were trying to do ministry. Some young adults months before had gone to the city and said, could we use your community center? We don't have any money. But could we use it every Saturday afternoon? And they said, yeah, we don't use it. What do you want to do with it? So he said, well, we just want to connect with kids and help your community out. Every Saturday afternoon, you've got it. Have it. So here we were. This has all started some months before when some of my friends had been at church. They had been at um, Pioneer Memorial Church, and Dwight had preached a sermon. And he had said, um, God's calling you to do something more. God's calling you to make a difference. And these young adults walked out of there and they said, well, what can we do? We don't know. And then one of them said, well, the worst place in the whole area, about 30 minutes north of Andrews University, the worst place in the whole area is Benton Harbor. Well, let's go up there. I bet you there's no Adventists up there doing anything. So the four or five of them got in a car and they drove up north. They're like, what are we going to do? They just drove around the city. Like, what are we going to do? We don't know. It was like, I got a few steps to Christ in here. They handed them out to a few people. They're like, we got to do a lot more than that. That's not going to do that much. What could we really do? So they came back and they started telling their friends. And I was one of those people that they told. About a month later, I got involved. I got involved because there was lots of kids in that area. And so what we started doing is we'd, we asked Andrews University if they would let us use a few vans from their place. And, and we would take some vans up and then we'd go from corner to corner and we'd take kids from those corners to the community center. We'd tell them what we were doing and then there was an empty lot next door and we'd go play games with them. We'd play kickball or whatever we could play. We'd play those games with them. Then we'd bring them back to the community center. We'd do crafts that we bought, that we brought to do with these kids. And then we'd get our guitars. Thank you for playing this morning. It was beautiful. And we'd get our guitars out there and we would sing songs about Jesus and we'd tell them stories from the Bible. These kids had never heard these songs. They had never heard these stories. They were building relationships with us and they got excited about it. And pretty soon it started with like 20 kids and then it was 30, 40, 50. And pretty soon we were 50 to 70 kids every week. Many of these kids had never even crossed over their street to the next street over because they were too scared. You see, the kind of community that it was was extremely dangerous. There was probably not a street that didn't have some kind of drug pusher on it. I had a friend that was an EMT that would help work in the Benton Harbor area. He said they just kept a body bag in the ambulance because at least once a week they were going to pick up somebody that was dead. There was a lot of shootings. There was a lot of gang violence. It's not a great place to be. The poor were rampant in that area. 
Nobody had anything. And there was not a lot of hope for where they were going. Other people came down there and started doing stuff too. Some people went from door to door and handed out books. Other people had some medical training. Granted, some of them were just, you know, first-year nursing students. But anyway, they would take a a blood pressure cuff, and they would go door to door, and they would um, say, hey, is there anything we can do? We'll take your blood pressure. We'll give you some advice on what to do. It's all free. And so they would do that. And other people would go around. There was garbage everywhere, and they'd pick up garbage in the city, and they would dispose of it. And we started to make a difference in that community. One of the Sabbaths, more towards the end of the year, we got this bright idea. There's a farm at Andrews University. It's cows. And I'm not a real big fan of cows, but that's because I worked there for a while. So there's lots of cows. But these kids had never seen calves before. So we talked to the farm. We said, you also have a couple sheep, and, and, and maybe we could bring a dog and a cat, and, and we'll get as many animals as we can. So we brought animals all the way up there, put them in pens outside, and, and we started bringing the kids in. But before we did that, we saw that the police were circling our area quite a bit. And I was helping now lead out with this kids' area. And so a couple of the other people, that, uh, that are young adults that were leaders, we said to them, we said, you know, we should go talk to the police and see what's going on. So we went over to the police. We said, what's going on? They said, we've been having a lot of gang violence lately. There's been multiple shootings this last week. Multiple people in the hospital, multiple people dead. It's not been good. And um, so it's very dangerous right now. And it hasn't died down. And we're like, you know, our eyes get big. We're like, well, should we be here? I mean, that was the obvious question. And the police looked at us and like, aren't you guys that group that's using the community center every Saturday afternoon? Yes, we are. He said, oh, you guys should stay. Why? He said, well, because whenever you're here, good things happen and nobody gets hurt. I don't, I don't know what it is about you guys, but it's going to be okay. And guess what? We'll, we'll, we'll patrol more today right around you guys. You're going to be fine. And all these kids came. They saw calves for the first time in their lives. They saw sheep for the first time in their lives. And it changed these kids' world. What we started doing unwittingly, unknowingly, was we started to live a cross-centered vision. We didn't know it. We didn't know what we were doing, but we started to live that way, and it began to change our world, began to change my world personally. You could see him that day. He was laying there on the ground, just on a mat, and as he thought to himself, I just, my life's a mess. I, I, it's like I don't have any hope, but I just heard this thing today. Maybe, maybe there is a little hope. There's this teacher coming through town, and, and I heard that he might be able to do something for me. And then as he thought about it more, it's like, now what could that teacher do for me? I mean, I, I've never been a great person. 
I, I'm, I, I don't have a relationship with God that much. I plead, but I never hear anything back. I mean, what could that teacher do for me? And then he started thinking about it. He'd heard stories. He'd heard stories that were fantastic. In fact, they were so fantastic, they didn't make any sense. Like, that couldn't be the case. He had heard that this teacher had gone to different places and he had healed people from leprosy. I mean, that's crazy. Who does that? He had even heard that there was a person that had been demon-possessed and this teacher came along and he kicked all the demons out. Now, how does that happen? And hope started springing up in his mind again. Well, maybe, maybe there is a possibility that this teacher, if he can do that, maybe he can take the sin out of my life. Because the sin is so overwhelming. It's so awful. I just want it gone. Maybe the teacher can do that. Maybe not, though. He, he lifted up his head just a little bit, and he looked down at himself. Emaciated. He couldn't move his toes. He couldn't move his fingers. He, he could move nothing. I mean, what kind of hope was there for a person that could only move their head? That was a paraplegic. It was impossible. But then... He had heard that this teacher had gone around and, and he had actually healed people. He had even healed people from the dead. Well, maybe, maybe this teacher could heal him. Maybe there was something to it that this teacher could do. So he got a little bit more excited. There was a little bit of hope. Scene two. It's a small house. Just a house. Somebody owned it. There was so many people in the house. Shoulder to shoulder. You couldn't pack more people into that house if you tried. I mean, there was people at the windows. There would be somebody sitting on the window and three heads up the other side trying to just see what was going on and to hear what was going on. The door was open and three to five people deep. People all over the place. They couldn't see in. But they were trying to hear what was going on. And then inside, people were so tight, it smelled a little bit because there were so many people. But they were all there. They, they weren't going to leave. They wanted to hear this teacher. And the teacher was right in the center. There was a, a circle around him so he could move a little bit. And right next to the people that were right in the center of that circle were people with fine robes. People that were leaders in the community. People that were, were leaders of their religion. And they were right next to where Jesus was as he was preaching. And as, as he spoke, they were listening. But there was two different types of listening that was happening. The Pharisees that were closest to Jesus were listening to every word to see what they could do to twist his words. To kick him out. To do away with him. But the people that were on the outer circle, the people that could only hear, they were listening with hope to what they hoped would be a Messiah. And then you heard it. Sounded like an angry voice coming from outside. You can't do this. Don't come in. No, you can't. Don't go up there. 
And then a little while later, they heard some pounding on the roof, and everybody kind of looked up, but then Jesus kept on talking, so they, they looked at Jesus. And then there was some scraping, and there was some more pounding, and all of a sudden, some of the ceiling started coming in, and Jesus looked up right as the stuff came down and got in his face, and he brushed it off, and he kind of took a step back, and everybody looked up, and a little hole appeared, and it got bigger. And as the hole got bigger and bigger, Jesus quit talking, and Everybody was watching. They could see four sets of hands pulling away and ripping apart the roof. And the roof got bigger and bigger, this hole, and, until finally, all of a sudden, they saw these four faces look in, pull out, reach over, and all of a sudden, they saw that there looked like something like a sheet or a hammock or something like that with ropes on four corners as these guys started letting down this sheet hammock all the way down and there was something in it and nobody was quite sure until until it got to the place where you could place where you could see at eye level what was going on you couldn't see very well you couldn't see exactly what was happening but then then he he looked over, and his head was flopping back and forth. Where is he? Where's that teacher? And then he looked over to his left, and there he was. And Jesus looked at him with compassion, with love, with forgiveness in his eyes. And the young man looked at him, And he knew he was forgiven. Nothing had even been said yet. And Jesus and him had this long moment and everybody could see it. And they're like, what is happening? And at that moment, that young man was like, it doesn't really matter if I ever get healed physically. Because I've been healed internally. It was different. It was a change. And then Jesus looks up. And he sees the four faces looking down. And they're watching with intense anticipation. And the Bible says it this way. It says, in seeing their faith. And I imagine Jesus' head looks right down then at the man, the paraplegic says, young man, your sins are forgiven. He couldn't believe it. And meanwhile, right next to him, the Pharisees are angry. You can see it on their face. They're ready to take Jesus out right then. But right behind them, just a couple rows back, are multiple people like, wow, look what he just did. You know, when reading about Jesus' life in the Bible, in the Gospels, you start to see a person who is at the center of everything. He's at the center of teaching. He's at the center of parties. He's at the center uh, 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 when there's a healing. He's at the center when he's at the synagogue. He's at the center wherever you would go. He's at the center of the Pharisees' wrath. He's always at the center of what's going on. In fact, you have multiple examples. I mean, 
thousands of people. We estimate probably somewhere around 15,000, 20,000 people show up two times. And Jesus teaches for hours. And then he feeds them all with hardly anything there. Just a little bit of fish and bread and everybody's fed. It's amazing. Jesus goes and sees kids and the kids want to be with him. He blesses the kids. He gets down on the ground. He plays with them in the dirt. He, he loves them. He holds them. Jesus is at the center of everything that's happening. It's truly amazing. The people that were typically the ones that wanted to be around Jesus, they were the poor, the hungry, the discards of society, the marginalized. See, that's who Jesus hung out with. I mean, just look at his disciples. Except for one of them, all of them were marginalized in society. Jesus hung out with them all the time. See, when Jesus was around people like this, they were drawn to him like a magnet. Because Jesus is hope. Jesus is hope. Desmond Tutu said it like this. Hope is being able to see that there is light despite all the darkness. There's light. There's a hope that's coming. Um, during the middle of COVID, I was trying and my colleagues were trying to do anything we could to run youth ministry stuff. Run the camp. Uh, do anything with Pathfinders we could do. And, and there was a lot of challenges. I mean, a lot. And so I was listening online and everyone talking to me different medical staff and um, different medical friends. And, and um, I was listening to a doctor one time online. And he was talking about COVID and he was doing a live Q&A. So people were asking questions. <clears throat> and I don't remember exactly how it came up. But at one point, uh, somebody said, well, what about those Christians and, and how they respond to things and, and how they respond to COVID and so forth. This doctor paused for a second and he said, you know, he said, I'm not Christian. He said, I'm an agnostic. And um, he said, but I know some Christians and I've studied a little bit about Jesus. Let me tell you what I know. And he said, I don't know much and we'll just leave it here and we'll go on to the next question. So I went back to listen to get this quote exactly right. Here's what he said. True Christianity, Christianity is about redemptive love. True Christianity is about Jesus as an awakened being. The divinity and humanity of Jesus in one thing, one being, it's beautiful. This is coming from an agnostic. He sees Jesus as beautiful. He sees Jesus as an amazing person. He may not see him as Lord, but he still sees that. Even the people, when they see Jesus, see that. That's awesome. So what about you? Is Jesus at the center of who you are? I must have hit that. I didn't mean to do that. Is Jesus at the center of who you are? Is Jesus at the aroma in your life that changes everything? Is he your hope? Do you see something beautiful? What lens do you look through to see Jesus? It's an important question. I found it's very important in Adventist circles. Because sometimes we look at Jesus through tradition. 
Sometimes we look at Jesus through what our parents did or didn't do. How do we see Jesus, and what lens do we see him through? I, um, I have a former profession. Um, I used to be a photographer, and um, I used to teach photography at a university. And um, I taught an entry-level class called Intro to Photography. And so I would do that every year and um, every semester. And um, so one of the things when you do that is you've got to teach people how to see, students how to see. Because you'd be surprised how many students don't know how to see um, and how many people don't know how to see. I've seen a lot of images, and a lot of them are really terrible. No offense. Um, and, and I remember um, <clears throat> having a lot of biology um, pre-medical students come to my class because they could take the class for art credit, right? And get four credits in one class, done with art credit, move on and get the rest of my pre-med stuff and then go to med school. Now, if you don't know, and I'm, there might be medical people here and I'm not marginalizing you at all, just so you know. Um, but what I noticed with these students is they expected to get A's or an A+. And I'm not a teacher that just gives out grades. And what would typically happen is they had a probably 75% of them had a real hard time seeing. How do you create something in that lens so it's beautiful? So it's really amazing. How do you do that? And they were great at test taking. And they were great at the areas in biology or whatever it was. But when it came to art, a little bit of a struggle. And so we would talk about how you can see better, how you can have a good vision. And there's lots of rules to photography, all right? There's lots of stuff. And one of the sections of those rules is called composition, all right? So composition is interesting, and there's a lot of rules within composition. So I'm going to show you one of the rules, and so you can kind of see what I'm talking about, all right? So this is a good picture, um, uh, a picture of an owl, obviously. And, and so I have a question for you, and you can just say it. Yes, we're, I'm not going to just speak the whole time, so you can just say it out loud. Where does your eye drawn to right away? The eye. the eye. Everybody said it, right? So there's several reasons for that, all right? Um, there's reasons why the photographer did what he did. Now, if you, had, if you were taking your picture this way with one of these, right? So you take a step back and you just take the picture. The, the owl's going to be somewhere in the middle, if you get him at all. And, and, and there's going to be lots of stuff around. And everything's going to be in focus. That's what's going to happen, right? Typically, that's what happens. The photographer didn't do that. He had a long lens, first of all. I have never met the photographer. So just as you kind of learn some of these things. But he had a long lens, first of all. And he got up close and in the lens, he cropped, or he may have done it later, but most likely he did at least part of it in the lens, and he cropped it right there in the lens. And he brought it in, and this is kind of what we call a monochromatic image, so it's pretty much muted colors, except for the eye. And the eye then pops out, so that's one thing, reason why you look at the eye. But the other reason is a compositional reason, and there's several of them, but the compositional reason is that the eye is dead on on a rule of thirds. So every image 
you can, in your mind, draw a tic-tac-toe grid, and your eye, or the subject, should be on one of those rules of thirds, all right? So you can see this one actually hits two, the top third and the right third, and that eye is dead on. And so it feels good. It feels like an image that you want to see, all right? If it's not, if the owl's dead center, for the most part, those images don't look great. And people are like, eh, you took a picture on your phone. That's all it is, right? So when you look at some other images, these are just some images from camp. Um, Here's a young man on a boat looking out across the water. And his eyes, his face, the front of his face is on a rule of thirds. And it's in focus, And he's looking out across the boat, looking into the image. And that rule of thirds is helping you again with the image. All right? Here's another one. There's a young man that was at one of our campfire programs. And he's in the back. He's praying. And again, his hands and his face are on a rule of thirds. Now, there's a lot of other rules that are helping these images out. But a rule of thirds is significantly helping the image out. And it's one of the basic ones. All right? If anybody took my class, they're going to hear about rule of thirds all the time. And they're going to start doing it, right? So, as a photographer, and going out and taking pictures like this, you start to look at images critically. You don't just look at them happenstance. In fact, it kind of gets bad if you're a student in doing this. I had a graphic design, I have several friends that do this, and one a graphic design friend. And uh, we would go watch a movie together, for example, and nobody wanted to be around us because we critique the whole thing. Um, because you start seeing all the, all the stuff, right? And it may not be quite the same, but you're seeing it because your eyes are opened. And you've learned to have vision that's different than you ever had before. And that's how we're applying this to people. How do you look at people? How do you see others? Do you see them through a cross-centered lens? Let me say it this way. Is our vision looking through an others-centered, selfless love framework? I'll say that again. Is our vision looking through an others-centered, selfless love framework? Is that what we're doing? When we look at other people, is that what we see? When we're standing in line at the grocery store, when we're working with one of our colleagues who's not nice, do we see them that way? That's a cross-centered vision. Do we look at other people that way? Another point I want to make before we go back and finish the story is this. Jesus looked at the four friends that were there. The four friends that had brought this young man. And he said, because they had faith, this man was saved. Think about that for a second. Some of you may have kids that have walked away from the faith. Some of you may have friends that aren't close to Christ at all. Maybe you have colleagues at work or other family members. Don't stop praying for them. Pray for them. 
journey with them. Maybe there's young people in this church that you need to journey with. It doesn't matter what they do or don't do. It matters that you're there, that you care about them, that you love them, because that will make all the difference in the world. These guys just brought him to Jesus. That's all you're to do. They didn't fix him. They didn't save him. They didn't tell him how to be. They couldn't heal him. Jesus did it all. That's all we're supposed to do. We journey with other people and we bring them to Jesus. And Jesus does everything. It's not my job to be Jesus. It's my job to show them Jesus. So that means that my vision has to be cross-centered. In other words, it has to look like Jesus saw us when he died on the cross. We have to have that kind of vision for other people. When we do, we never see somebody that is lost. We never see somebody that is so far gone that we can't come up to them and love them right where they are. And just by that alone, it will change their world. <clears throat> journey with people journey with the young adults in your church with the kids in your church don't stop it doesn't matter what they do I have too many loved ones that aren't following God and I just keep on journeying with them and I pray for them every day and any chance I get I'm in relationship with them because that changes everything. Back to our story. The Pharisees were ticked. You could see it on their face. They were angry. They were, they were ready to spit nails. They were so upset. But there's not much they could do. And Jesus sees it. He sees what's happening. And then he, he asks them. I love this about Jesus. He does something we can't do unless the Spirit is aiding us in any way. And he says, um, so why do you question this in your hearts? The question was, why do you question that he could forgive sins? He said, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? I ask you that question. Which is easier to say? Since I can't do either, I say they're both very hard. Right? And Jesus then says, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man, and I love how he does that because he's calling back on the history of the Israelites, and he's saying, I am the one that's stepping in to be the Son of Man. I am part of the line of David. I am that Messiah that's coming. Wow, that packed a punch for the Pharisees, and they didn't like that at all. And he, so he says, I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And this is how he proved to them that he has the authority. So he turned to the paralyzed man, and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. <laughs> this, is, this is what plays in my mind. The guy's laying there now on the ground, and he jumps up. He hasn't used those limbs in who knows how long. His fingers are working. His toes are working. He has power in his muscles. And he stands up and the place is just packed. And he just starts running because he can run. 
And people just start like, whoa, I don't want to get hit. And he's just running out of there. He grabbed his mat and he was gone. Guess where he was going? He was going home. He runs through town praising God. He goes home, has the biggest party that's ever happened, and praises God. And his family begins to believe in Jesus too. Meanwhile, the Pharisees, of course, are angry, even more angry now. And they wanted to finish Jesus off right there. But the sentiment in the town had changed because of what had happened right there. It was Sabbath morning, and um, I was getting ready for church. And as I was getting ready for church, my, uh, my, I was getting my family in. This was quite a while ago. I was youth pastor at the Columbia Seventh-day Adventist Church, and then senior pastor. So I was senior pastor at this point, and um, I was getting my kids in, putting them in their booster seats. They were only like that tall, not like that tall. And as I put them in their seats and we clicked them shut, my wife got in the front seat and I got in the driver's seat. She likes me to drive, so, and I like to drive. So I got in the, in the seat and um, we headed out our driveway. We had, at that point, we had seven hills from our home to the highway. And, and dad loved to go fast over those hills because they were very steep. And, the, and if you went fast, your stomach would go up there and I would hear from my kids start this giggling, this start to laugh. And it was just wonderful. So... Um, I'd go fast over these hills, and we got to the highway and took the on-ramp, and, and, um, and the next exit was our place to go to the church. Excuse me just a second. <coughs> Thank you for the water, by the way. Sam is very nice. So I, um, we, we started going off on the off-ramp, and as we went on, on the off-ramp, there was a car right to the right. We were slowing down. And my wife and I both looked at the same time to see who was in the car. There's rarely anybody at that off-ramp. And, um, and what we saw was this. A woman in the car, she was slumped over the steering wheel like this. And as we went by the car, I thought to myself, <clears throat> huh, I've got to be at church shortly. And then I don't know if you've had this happen to you. That still small voice speaks to you. And it says, Jeff, you need to go back and see if that woman needs some help. Now, I don't know about you, but I usually speak back to that voice. And because I'm right, I said something along the lines of, no, I don't have time. I I mean, I'm the senior pastor. I got to be at church. I got to be at church now. I mean, we're not late, but we will be shortly. And so... um, I started pulling up to the stoplight, stopped, got ready to turn left. Church was no more than 10 minutes down the road, seven minutes, something like that. And then I hear the second voice that speaks to me. That one was audible. Jeff, we should go back and check on that lady. That was my wife. (laughs) And I said, "Um, okay. And so I did what I do because um, I drive the way I drive. And um, I looked around and I got ready to start backing down the off-ramp. <laughs> and my wife said, no, you don't. Don't do that. Go around. So I took a left and went to the on-ramp to the highway and 
back to the off-ramp, and then another on-ramp, and then back to the off-ramp, and we pulled up beside her. I was only 20 feet from her, but anyway, pulled up beside her, and um, my wife rolled down the window just a little bit, and the lady rolled down her window just a little bit. We didn't know her, and um, we looked over, and her, her window was kind of all steamed up and stuff, and we couldn't really see in, but my wife yelled to her, are you okay? She, we heard back, no, I'm not. And we're like, um, can we help you? What, what can we do? I need gas. Okay. Jeff, get out of the car and go around and, and see what she needs. So I got out of the car. By the way, I've told this story with my wife sitting here, so don't worry about anything. She's, she's made sure it's all correct. Um, so I went around the, around the car, and I went up to the side where she was, kind of like a police officer does, because I didn't really, you know, I didn't know what she had in the car. And so I went up there, and I said, um, ma'am, how, how, can, how can we help you? And... Um, she said, well, I, I really need some fuel. I'm completely out of gas. And, and then I looked at her face. Her face had tears that had just been streaming down it, and she was still sort of crying. Her hair was just all a mess. It looked like she'd just thrown clothes on just two seconds before, totally disheveled. And it was, I was like, wow, something's going on here that I don't know. And my wife got out of the car at that point and came over, and, and then she rolled her window all the way down because I think she felt safer with another woman there. And, um, and my wife's like, so you need some fuel? And I looked at my wife, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, church has already started. Sabbath school has, and I've got to get there. And um, my wife says, yeah, we'll get some fuel for you. I'm like, oh. And so I'm like, okay, this is bad on multiple fronts. And we went and got back in the car, and there was a gas station right there at that exit. And we got up to the stoplight. And running through my head is this. Well, you're going to be late. You're at least halfway late to Sabbath school. And you know what the problem that is. Because things, if they've gone wrong, you can solve it now. But if church starts, you can't solve the problem by then. And that's going to be a mess. And so you really need to go. And I'm just getting more and more anxious about that. And as we pulled into the gas station, I'm like, oh, and this is bad. You know, church members are going to go right by this place, and they're going to see me getting gas. And plus, I don't have a tank, so I'm going to have to go buy a tank, and they're going to like, oh, my, this is going to go really bad. But of course, if they pull into the gas station, then we both got problems. So there's that. And I'm just processing all this stuff, and I'm getting more upset. And I, I, I get a gas tank. And I come back and I fill it up and I'm really just like, oh, put it back, pay for it, get in the car, go back around, all the way back around to where she is. This is 15, 20 minutes later, finally get back there. And this time we pull up behind her. And by this time, the Holy Spirit started to speak to me. And the Holy Spirit's saying, you realize that when I look at this lady, I see somebody that needs some help. I see somebody who needs some love in their life. And I don't care about all the rules in the world because I care about her. And here's the other piece, Jeff. I called you and Kathy to be here for her. You are me right now. And straighten up, young man. 
because this isn't the way you behave. And my heart started softening. I got the gas tank out, went to where her car was, started putting the fuel in. And the lady got out of the car, and my wife got out of our car, and, and we started talking. And my wife said, you know, what's really going on? Because it was obvious. We looked in her car. It looked like all her earthly goods had been thrown, just thrown in the car. Nothing organized or neat, just like, as fast as we can get it in there. And this is the story she told us. She said she got married about 10 years before this. And within two years of her marriage, she realized it was the worst thing and mistake she had ever made in her life. Her husband had been abusing her, and I won't say all the ways, in every way possible, wrecking her life. And as happens with many spouses when this occurs, she tried to stick it out. She tried to, you know, blamed other people, ignored it. There's all sorts of things that happen. And they don't work. And he kept on hurting her and abusing her. And... Finally, she said, I've got to leave. I've got to leave home. I don't know what to do, but I need to leave because he had started making death threats at her. And so she, she, she did what a lot of people do or what people do when they're this desperate. She said, I got to run away, but I don't have any money. He controlled her so much that, that he would take all her money. And so she started a couple years before, she started saving a dollar here, a dollar there, and hiding it under a mattress, hiding it in, in different places around the house so that she could have accumulate enough money to run away. And finally, one day it happened. She was looking for that opportunity. She had enough, and he was leaving, and sounded like for at least 24 hours. And so she, she um, the second he left that morning, she immediately went, got all her money. She grabbed everything in the house she could possibly find. She just threw it in the car, jumped in the car, made sure she had all her stuff, and she took off. And she headed our direction. She had forgot to look at the car when she left, and he had left it on almost empty. And so by the time the light came on that the fuel gauge was on empty, she realized she was in trouble. She pulled off on the exit and she couldn't make it to the gas station because she didn't have enough fuel in her car. And she stopped right there. And there we were. And I realized that I needed to have better cross-centered vision because I was off. I was, more, I was caring more about, about being at the church than I was caring about a human being that needed help that God had sent us to. The church can take care of itself. You have a good pastor, but he doesn't have to preach every Sabbath if something else comes up. Because you got people here that can, and if you don't have somebody that can preach, you can sing and pray. The church is a community, and we're called to reach people. We finished putting the fuel in the car, we got back in, and we, and I said, you want us to, we'll fill up your car. And so we went up to the gas station and we filled her car up all the way. And my wife went over to her. My wife's a mental health therapist. 
and she used to be a social worker as well. And so she spent some time while I was filling up the car walking through different areas that can really, could really help her, places where she could find help and disappear and be protected. So she went through some of those things with this lady. And this lady told us, she said, well, she said, I'm going to see a friend, and once I see her, I'm going to stay there for about a day. She has some extra money for me, and then I'm going to disappear forever, um, change my name, etc. Nobody's ever going to see me again that knows me now. We never saw her again. But God had called us there. When you view the cross of Christ, what do you think Jesus saw? What did he look at? When you view other people, do you view them the way, same way that Jesus did on the cross when he viewed us? Maybe you see age. Maybe you see race. Maybe you see gender, maybe you see poor, maybe you see whatever you see. Start praying for Jesus to put a different perspective, a different vision in your life to see people the same way he saw you and me. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. This world desperately needs people with cross-centered vision. I also wanted to mention that there is a potluck downstairs after the service. All are welcome, and I've been told there's lots of desserts. And there goes my husband right now. I was going to say, you guys have to hurry and go get desserts before Brandon eats them all. Because his birthday was yesterday, so he's going to celebrate being 40. Okay, our closing hymn.